Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the first big block of teaching in Luke. He's taught before, but this is the first big block of teaching in Luke, a block that is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, and this one is often called the Sermon on the Plains, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. And while it has much of the same content as the Sermon on the Mount, there are some unique differences here, too. And just really as a quick aside, you know, some people kind of struggle that, wait, there's two different sermons that are kind of similar? Jesus preached hundreds of sermons, and he overlapped in meaning, and he had unique highlights from sermon to sermon, even that as he probably highlighted some of the very same things. That's what we see here. It's similar, yet he's highlighting slightly different things. Well, this morning we're looking at Luke's version of the Beatitudes, and so we're going to begin with chapter 6, with verse 20. And he, that is Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak wealth of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word through your Son, and we pray that your Spirit then would be upon us in this time together as one people, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and that this word would penetrate in each of our hearts and minds and feet in just the ways that we need to hear it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a while, but if you'll remember from two weeks ago, uh, the last time I preached here, Jesus had set apart 12 men to serve as his apostles, as official witnesses to his, his teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension. And they, they function basically as ambassadors for his kingdom. And the 12 weren't, of course, the only people who followed uh, Jesus or were considered his disciples, but they, they are the ones set apart for this very specific role. Now, in turn, we finished off last time with a, a large crowd of people that had come from the south and from the north, presumably both Jew and Gentile. So kind of Israel all together gathered to hear him and to be healed by him. Well, it's in this setting that we read that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, there are at least two things to note up front. First, this teaching, like with the Sermon on the Mount, is directly aimed at the twelve, even as the wider group of disciples and the crowds at large could listen in. Jesus' teaching is about what it looks like, then, to be his disciple. Therein, this is not about how a person becomes a Christian, so you don't take a vow of poverty 
then God accepts you, as, as some have mistakenly understood Jesus to be saying here. That's not what he's saying. No, this is a description of people who already have faith in Jesus. Now, second, and related to this, the way Jesus begins his teaching reinforces this idea that it's for his disciples and for believers and is reminiscent of the blessing that God commanded Aaron, the high priest, to pronounce over God's people. Here's what Numbers 6.22 and following says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that is the priestly class, the high priest and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So this is where we get the, the practice of the benediction at the end of the service. And I've used that very benediction in, in, it's at least once a month, maybe once every six weeks. In our passage, Jesus lifts up his eyes on the disciples. That is, he's lifting up his countenance, get the image, he's picking up his head to look at them. He's causing his face to shine upon them. The eyes are the light of the heart. His eyes are upon them. And he says, blessed are you. So Jesus, the great high priest, begins with benediction, with the good word of God's blessing to his people. Now, to be blessed is not, as many Americans think, to have financial prosperity or health or even a season of peace. After all, Jesus says, blessed are you, four times, and then follows each of those blessings with very difficult situations. A person may have peace in health and wealth and be blessed, but those things don't necessarily go together. They might, but maybe not. No, as Jesus teaches in the woe to you section that follows this, such things actually may be a sign of his judgment because he's handed you over to what you truly want most. The primary thing in view here, though, is that the blessed person enjoys God's favor and thus has God himself. Even so, the pull to measure blessing by these things is so strong that when Satan called God's assessment of Job into question, remember God had said no one was as righteous and blameless as Job, and he wasn't talking about perfectionism, but a man whose heart was set on God. Satan said, okay, sure, take away his money, his family, and his health, and he'll curse your name. So as God tells Moses to have God's blessing, maybe it includes those things, but more so it's to have his name upon you. So just as Israel enjoyed God's favor and presence, especially as he put his name in the tabernacle and the temple and made his home among them, even more so through Jesus in the spirit, God has put his name in his people. So for good reason, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he carried the 12 tribes of Israel's name upon him. He went in there carrying Israel to God and God in turn blessed. Though the tabernacle uh, always looked forward to, you see, and anticipated the glory of God. I mean, think of it this way. God's same consuming 
glory fire that Moses encountered at the burning bush. Remember that story in Exodus? And that in turn, same glory, led Israel out of Egypt in that fiery pillar and in turn descended upon the tabernacle and temple in the sense that they could see it right there in their midst. That same glory of God has descended upon us like you see at Pentecost with the fire on the apostles. And we've received it through the Spirit. You see, the tabernacle always looked forward to and anticipated the glory of God literally dwelling within his people. That's why we rightly say church is not a building. It never has been. The church has always been God's people dwelling with him. In our passage, that same God in his son has in this moment lifted up his countenance on the disciples and has pronounced his favor, his high priestly benediction of his presence, his name upon them. Blessed are you. Now, the first beatitude, and beatitude is simply the Latin of blessed are you, says blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this is a significant change. This is a significant change, if not, in some ways, at a first reading, a contradiction from what God says in Deuteronomy 28, when he re-ups the covenant with the generation getting ready to take the promised land. In Deuteronomy 28, God promises that he will bless his people with material prosperity, peace from their enemies, the abundance of children, and they will be the highest of the nations if they keep faith, if they keep their wedding vows with him. It's why, for example, people naturally assume that the rich young man of Matthew 19 must be a morally good and faithful man. They assumed God had blessed his faithfulness with abundance in keeping with Deuteronomy 28. Now keep in mind, in Deuteronomy, the people are already in covenant with God. They are already blessed in him and have his name upon them. So they're already married. And he's saying, just stay faithful. But if they keep the covenant, which included provisions, by the way, for when they sin. So this is not perfectionism. So he's not after, you know, sinlessness. God would bless them with tremendous prosperity. Just go read it. It's so over the top. But here, Jesus is saying his disciples are already blessed, and because of it, they may endure real hardship for their faithfulness. It's like what Jesus promises in Matthew 16. His disciples have life in him, but they very well may be put on literal crosses. Remember what Jesus, though, has already taught in Luke. The people of God are at a crossroads between the old covenant and the new covenant, between the new wine and new wineskins and the old wine and old wineskins. So the era is changing. And in many ways, the people of God are not merely expanding to include the Gentiles, something that was always at work within the Old Testament anyway. They are moving from childhood or adolescence into adulthood and maturity. This is what the gift of the Spirit in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 implies. And it's what Paul teaches in Galatians. It's what he teaches in Hebrews as well. And as any mature adult knows, and by mature I don't mean 
simply that they have a mature body, a mature mind and heart. As any mature adult knows, maturity is both the ability to know the difference between good and evil and choosing the good, even when there is no apparent benefit to choosing, which in turn includes the ability and the willingness to delay gratification. So in some ways, Deuteronomy reads like instructions to the immature. Now listen, if you do what I ask, I will give you a treat. You will get a party for having read so many books. Are you going to get a star sticker on your paper for getting a good grade? Well done. Now, I, that's over the top. It's not quite like that, but you get, you get the idea. But as the people of God grow into maturity and adulthood, they could put off instant gratification and endure with things like hunger or poverty, trusting like Jesus demonstrated in his own temptation. He's the new Adam. He's humanity come of age. That God will certainly bless those who endure, even if they don't enjoy those blessings immediately or maybe even in this life. So Jesus is not saying that simply by virtue of being poor, a person is blessed or is righteous and in turn gets a reward for it. That's not what he's teaching at all. I mean, consider what Proverbs 30 teaches. It says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So it is better to be neither rich or poor, but to have enough. Why? When you are rich, and by the way, Every single one of us, by proverb standards, are wealthy beyond belief. Well, we are all tempted to deny that God actually provided for us. You believe the lie that you earned it yourself, and thus you are a God unto yourself. When you are poor, you're tempted to steal because you do not believe that God will provide for you because, well, you're hungry right now. Jesus' point is that his disciples, well, they can endure poverty because they already have the kingdom of God right now, even in their poverty. And in turn, they live in light of their future death and resurrection, knowing that this time of poverty, it has a shelf life. Now, of course, Paul famously lived in both plenty and in want and learned to find contentment in both, not because he found poverty in and of itself to be a blessing. It's not. But because, like Job, God's favor rested on him. And so he could delay his gratification and wait on God to do it. And even then, you could hear him say sometimes, I really want to go to be with the Lord because this is hard. Now, the second beatitude is similar to the first in that it says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be future satisfied. Now, it trades on the same idea that even though you hunger now, your hunger will come to an end. Like Israel in the wilderness, the simple daily provision of manna, which had to be fairly monotonous and drab, will one day be exchanged for the wedding feast 
of the Lamb. So also, again, with a third beatitude, a person who endures with weeping now, and weeping covers a wide range of reasons, perhaps from trauma, or loss, or a disease, or physical pain, that weeping will be turned into laughter. It's like what David writes in Psalm 30. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. And just as an aside, it's only modern men who think they cannot plead for mercy and cry, right? If you read David, we would think he's a sniveling baby at times because he wails before God at times. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit, that is to death? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Why? Because he's turned his weeping into laughter. The one who weeps will not always weep because God is her salvation, and she trusts that God will turn her mourning into laughter and eventually into dancing. Jesus' final beatitude is aimed at the immediate cost to those who follow him. He says, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So the issue is not that his his disciples are simply hated or rejected. They are hated and rejected specifically because of Jesus. So this too points to a maturity issue. The immature, whether they be children or adults, are swept along by the mob. And they jump on whatever trend is popular in the moment. They are like shifting sand and are easily defined by the fear of wanting to fit in. And make no mistake, the pull to want to fit in is just as strong, if not perhaps stronger, than the pull to eat when you were hungry. The mature is founded on the rock. And even when people popular opinion turns against them, on account of Jesus, they will endure. And again, they delay their gratification, trusting that Jesus will provide a better future than what they're enduring right now. And of course, this rejection really hurts, especially when as mature adults, we see that rejection extend beyond us to our children who do not understand why they are rejected by their peers too. Even so, when this happens, Jesus' disciples can rejoice because they know that Jesus' word is true and they are being treated just like Elijah and Jeremiah were treated. Now, as an aside, in this country, uh, Christians are often these days hated not because they're actually living as Christians, but because the opposite, they live like the world. You know, Peter puts it like this, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So when you're doing badly and you get hammered for it, right, you should. There are many Christians, and it is easily seen online. We call this Twitter, right? 
that act like utter buffoons. They've taken on the posture and the language of the world and they get hammered for it and then in turn they claim to be persecuted by Christ. They're not being persecuted for Christ's sake. It's not persecution if you sound and act like the world. If anything, it's God's discipline and they should be thankful for it. Now keep in mind that while Jesus is directly addressing his disciples, especially his apostles, well, his opponents are there in the crowds too. And so his teaching is as much a source of warning for those who reject him, which takes us to this, this back half. In verse 24, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And this matches beat for beat with the first beatitude. So again, the issue is not that the rich are, by virtue of being rich, evil, and, and the poor, by virtue of being poor, are are virtuous or righteous. Wealth and or the lack of it is not an indication of moral status. It could be, but not necessarily. And again, as the Proverbs points out, both situations come with a temptation to deny God, both. No, the warning has to do with what the rich, who in this case would have certainly been the leaders of Israel, are looking to for their consolation. Now remember back in Luke 2, that at Jesus' dedication in the temple, and this was on the eighth day after his circumcision according to law, remember that was probably around about Christmas when we dealt with that, there was a man named Simeon who was waiting on the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel, that is the one who would console Israel as, as David desired the mercy from God and restore Israel to her God, well, that's the Messiah. So in other words, if the people, particularly Israel's leadership, you know, her self-appointed shepherds were content with the old ways and in turn rejected Jesus, the Messiah, well, this life would be as good as it would ever be for them. Remember, the rich young man rejected Jesus because he loved what God had given him more than the Son of God that was standing right in front of him. So though he appeared righteous, he was in fact immature, choosing the immediate gratification of his wealth over life in the Son, which would have no end. Well, the second woe, like the second beatitude, highlights hunger. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who reject Jesus now because you're unwilling to let go of your security and comfort in this present moment, or in the case of Israel's leadership, most certainly their positions of authority. Unlike John the Baptist, they wanted to increase, and they wanted Jesus to decrease. The third woe hits the same beat. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And of course, at the cross, the leaders of Israel mocked and laughed at Jesus. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, come on and do it, brother. You have to imagine what life was like for such men after that moment. I imagine they went home to celebrate the Passover and felt content. At the end of that meal, felt content, they felt full. Maybe even chuckled or gloated over what a pathetic loser Jesus was. But as the Christian movement grew, it probably annoyed them to no end. In fact, you could certainly see that among the Sanhedrin. And of course, within 40 years, the temple was raised to the ground, just as Jesus said it would be. 
which not only confirmed that the kingdom of God had shown up in power, it also confirmed that the old covenant with its old wine and old wineskins was done and was never coming back. Their laughter turned into mourning. Their positions of power and wealth, gone. And Jesus ends this section with, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Not many Christians realize that the prophets who made it into Scripture, like say Elijah or Elisa, or Isaiah, excuse me, or Jeremiah, they're the faithful minority. They're the minority. Kings loved when prophets told them what they wanted to hear. It's why Ahab and Jezebel hated Elijah and tried to kill him. And just like today, there are all too many pastors who are willing to tell people what they want to hear, and they do it in God's name. The Pharisees and scribes hated Jesus, and their response was to keep to the old covenant, the old wine, and in turn, call for Jesus' head. And all of this garnered them a lot of praise. And in the short run, just like it did for a young man named Saul, it gave them standing, even maybe greater standing in the community. And of course, Saul would later be renamed Paul, and his laughter first turned to mourning, but then it turned to laughter again as he was put into Jesus' service. So while we are not exactly facing the same choices as the crowds face, I mean, the two ways of the Old Covenant in Moses versus the New Covenant in Jesus, even so, as his disciples, he's given us a lot to chew on with just these, these short verses. So, for example, while many people think going through suffering or trauma is a sign of God's absence, Jesus indicates the opposite. Blessed are you when you suffer such things, because not only will these things not be the end of you, they're actually marks of belonging to him. That's not to say that we should pursue poverty or hunger or, or persecution. Many Christians have mistakenly thought that. But it certainly doesn't mean if you're not presently going through these sorts of things that God is not with you either. But when they do happen and these things are out of our control, I mean, who really chooses to go hungry unless you're on a diet fat or something like that? I mean, who chooses to weep? When they do happen, instead of thinking God has abandoned us, we should trust that he is with us in the midst of it. I mean, after all, every single one of these Beatitudes is something that Jesus himself endured as the beloved son of the Father. These blessings and woes also call to mind Jesus' parable of the sower in chapter 8, which we'll get to, I guess, in several weeks, where Jesus describes many people hearing his word and in turn wanting to be his disciples, but few actually bear fruit. So some hear his word, but the devil comes, and maybe it's in the form of a counter-argument. You know, but science says, or this authority says, or maybe it just conflicts with someone's political ideology, which really is a form of religion today. And the devil takes away the word, and the person does not believe. Some hear his word and receive it with joy, and they believe it for a while. They get excited, and maybe it's like, like going to a revival. You know, this time, y'all, it's going to stick. It's really going to happen. Number nine, baptism is the one. I can feel it. But in a time of testing, 
Maybe like the sort of trial Jesus talks about here, or maybe it's as simple as with so many marriages. When the passion cools and the humdrum of daily life shows up, they lose interest and they fall away. Now others hear the word, but the thorns of life choke it out. That is the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And so they fall away. And that one's worth meditating on. That's one that I think we all should be thinking about. Because remember, according to Proverbs standards, all of us here are wealthy. Every last one of us. We are all for Jesus just so long as it does not conflict with my schedule or my pursuit of myself or my comfort or however I've come to cultivate my identity. And in a sense, this is related to how the Pharisees were unwilling to accept Jesus as Lord and in turn were unwilling to let go and grow into maturity according to him. You know, if a person just wants to be happy, if that's what they want, they want to be happy, they may very well be able to achieve some measure of happiness. But like with Trent Reznor via Johnny Cash, what he said in that song, Hurt, what he sang, and I encourage you, go look it up on YouTube. Johnny Cash, Hurt. That's your search engine. Go watch that video. You can have it all. My empire of dirt my empire of dust and death because that is what the pursuit of happiness eventually becomes or as Jesus said if that's what you want if that's what you're pursuing you might actually get it and this life in turn will be as good as it ever gets for you and that is a terrifying thought it's a terrifying thought now still others hear the word and it takes root and over time really over the course of their life, however long that life is, they bear some measure of fruit. And that's just another way of saying that the person Jesus started with is not the same person walking with Jesus years later. And that's a good thing. So the parable of the sower, like the Beatitudes and the woes we've been looking at, invites those who claim to be disciples to self-reflection and to consider what kind of disciple they actually are. It's an invitation to dig deep and to really think through your life. And maybe that will include asking friends or families what they think, which, by the way, can be a terrifying thing. It's an invitation to let go of childish gratification and to pursue mature self-denial in Christ. Well, more to come in the weeks to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for how you lovingly and patiently will not let us go, how you will not let us remain as children, how you patiently teach us to move from instant gratification to self-denial in you. Lord, thank you for that gift. It's learning to eat the meat and give up the milk. It's learning to walk in your ways and be exactly the sort of Solomons you would have all of us to be. I pray these sorts of things all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.